Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out, and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully, in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we have the Joey Dumont. Good morning to you. I think, or no, good afternoon, I should say even. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> welcome for to the show. Yeah, listen, yeah. it's cool, it's cool. So don't, <clears throat> Joey, Joey, tell us, who are you, what do you do, and where are you from? Well, I am a, currently I'm a stay-at-home dad to my two little boys uh, who are eight and nine years old. And uh, that kind of started after a 20-year career in the world of advertising. I was a partner and managing director of a successful ad agency here in San Francisco, New York City. And uh, I spent most of my life on planes and pitching deals and taking clients to dinners and loving my teammates. And then in 2017, I took a break to write a memoir which is named Joey Somebody, The Life and Times of a Recovering Douchebag. And the idea there was that I wanted my little boys to know that even their heroes are vulnerable. And I sadly had one of my best friends die in a car accident in May of 2017. And his wife asked me if I would come and deliver the eulogy at the funeral. And as I was writing the eulogy, I realized that my little dudes at the time were six and four and if this same fate were to befall me, then they wouldn't know who I was. They would have known from my, my wife that, oh, your daddy loved you so much. He was your coach on all your teams, and he drove you to school, and he tucked you in every night, and he loved you to death. And then my brother would say, you know, your dad was so cool. And my buddies would say your dad was a funny guy, and we all loved him, but they wouldn't have known kind of how I grew up. My dad was a sociopath. He did a lot of really bad stuff to my little family, uh, which in part contributed to my little brother's death by depression. My older brother suffering from MDD, uh, major depressive disorder since he was 30, uh, burying a lot of the stuff that we went through. And so I wanted to, as some some kind of a cathartic exercise to just write it all out. I spent eight years on a couch in front of a wonderful clinical psychologist, I guess, probably a good preface. And then from there, I barfed this all out with my brother as a co-author. And it, it was really rough. I didn't enjoy it <laughs> at all. People keep saying, so when are you going to write your next book? I'm like, you know, no, like it's, it's possible someday, but I don't even want to think about that. And if I ever write another book, it'll have nothing to do with being a memoir because that was just too much. But the idea there in a long winded answer, Pete, was that that's who I am right now. I'm a stay at home dad proudly. And it's been the best four years of my life to spend as much time as I could with my kids to kind of correct or they say, you know, break the chain of abuse from mm. my father and, and parent, have put parenting at the top of my hierarchy. Let's just put it that way. That's cool. I mean, you, so you have taken conscious decision to recite that and to, to right the wrong, if you like. Yeah, yeah. To, you know, and again, I, I make mistakes as a parent, just like we all do. But as an older parent, you know, I didn't have my children until I was in my late 40s. And so... I kind of grew up a little more than this. Let's just say if I had kids and I could just keep it to me, 
if I had kids in my 20s, I would not have been as attentive. Hmm. I would have been more because I was very self-absorbed, <laughs> hence the name of the book. But I, uh, I learned to love myself in therapy, not at an arrogant level, but at a true conscious level. And then from that, I could then, for the first time in my life, love my wife, love my kids. And that's probably I wasn't having any success in relationships <laughs> up until then, until I got to kind of know who I was. And, and, and then sharing that with my, with my little dudes and watching kind of how they've grown uh, with having not only my wife and myself in a very quiet home, which was one of my goals in life. My brother, who is single uh, and doesn't like a lot of people, he, he likes to be alone, he likes to read. He's a law professor and a thinker, and, and uh, he is very active with my kids. So he's here, you know, four or five days a week. And when my wife and I go out, he, he's the first babysitter, the only babysitter. So the kids have a very, uh, very fortunate existence. Let's just say that. They have a lot of love and a lot of discipline and a lot of attention. And uh, thus far, it's, it's proven to be good. Hmm. You find, I mean, do, do those voids make your values to think, you know, the, the stuff that you didn't have, you go overboard now, not overboard, but you, you emphasize that that has to happen. Yeah. I think that my brother and I've said this out loud that we wanted to be the dad that we didn't have. Hmm. And our dad split when we were kids and then worse, he came back 10 years later and just, you know, stirred up the pot and did really bad stuff. And <clears throat> So yeah, we just wanted to be the, you know, <laughs> be the non-dad, be, be like the opposite of our own father. So, mm. and that, that was, you know, the, there's that whole, the old adage that Buddha wept when his nemesis died because you learned from your nemesis. And I think that we learned a lot from our father of exactly mm. what not to do as a parent. Mm. And obviously he was mentally ill, which I learned about later. And so that helped with the whole, my dad didn't love me thing because it's mm. really weird as a kid to not feel love from a parent that doesn't at a DNA level, I don't think it, it fires. I think there's an evolutionary biology that kind of speaks to parents being protective <clears throat> and, and not the opposite. <laughs> and when that is violated, there's just something wrong and, and your brain kind of on the neuroplasticity side changes a bit. And I had to kind of shift that back through therapy because a lot of those things caused a lot of self-loathing, you know, in my behavior and uh, self-loathing leads to, bad things <laughs> historically mm. so it, it doesn't sound great <laughs> so yeah it's, it's fair to say this is not going the right way no maybe a bit of a strange question but do you know why your dad was like that yeah you know that's a question that i'll never have answered because he's dead now and mm. any kind of diagnoses outside of you know an actual clinical psychologist sitting down with him or or you know psychiatrist he was categorized as a malignant narcissist sociopath, meaning that he had no feelings, no conscious, very self-absorbed, only saw life through the lens of his being. And it was expressed in actions, not just words. And we watched that. And so that's very, very bizarre when, like when my little brother passed away, at the funeral, people would ask him, how are you doing, Jim? And he actually took it well, I'm doing this and this is what I'm doing. And, and, you know, my job is this. And I mean, he never, he didn't even answer the question because it wasn't about my little brother. It was when someone said, how are you doing, Jim? Mm. A normal human being 
ask that question at their son's funeral <laughs> is about how are you doing with the loss of your child? Mm. And, you know, my, my dad's answers and which were witnessed by both my brother and I, my older brother and I, it was just startling. We were like, wow. <laughs> Whoa. You know, and this is when we were adults. So this was, you know, after we knew he was a lunatic, but it was, mm. that was just reinforcement of how sick he was. And at that, and that, and that was the good thing though, you know, in the, in the whole scheme of things, it was good to know that he was mentally ill. Cause if he wasn't, then it's a, you know, then it was about me or my mm. brothers possibly. So yeah, and we don't know yeah. what was wrong with it. He was just a mess. <clears throat> so talk about, I mean, I'm, I'm curious about the book title. I mean, one, first of all, was Joey somebody who's, who's the somebody. Well, that was kind of the, the purpose of that was that we wanted to make sure that we understood or I want, I wanted the reader to understand that I never knew who I was. And so the personas that I developed within my life, I was an athlete growing up. I was very good at sports, captains of my team, all those kind of things. And that became my persona. That was where my, not only my parents, but my teachers and my friends identified me as that. And when I started screwing up in high school, I blew a couple scholarship opportunities. And so I played junior college tennis, uh, which was the highest level I ever competed at anything. It was, you know, really astute, disciplined athletes that were going to four-year colleges, and they used this as a stepping stone. And so they were very disciplined athletes. And that was the, I guess, the best example I had about, oh, okay, wow, I, I am an athlete, but I'm not mentally prepared to be an athlete. And I never got there. <clears throat> and so then when I went into the business world after college, well, I should be clear in that I dropped out of junior college after three years because I just was a terrible student and I would not focus on anything to do with homework or even attending class. I had a lot of fun with girls and beer, cake stands and, and, you know, attending every single party. Whereas in normal people would spend one or two nights at a party, I would go to five in a row because that was my thing. And, and so when I jumped into the business world, I then decided I wanted to be successful and I jumped into the world of sales. And in doing that, then I started putting on a persona with suits and clothes and cars and things like that, still not knowing who I was. And then throughout that, up until I probably got into the world of advertising, which is actually where I found my, my tribe, if you will, advertising people just across the board, uh, unlike me in this case, are, they usually come from the best schools. They have a very disciplined upbringing, uh, a linear path to get to the big ad, the agencies and the technologies and all the companies that are kind of surrounding the world of advertising. They were creative, wonderful thinkers. They were and are uh, highly motivated, highly intelligent, highly conscientious group of people. And so I felt really at home. Uh, and I think even mentioned in our, our pre-call that I, a lot of things that I do in my life are due to intellectual curiosity. I like to understand things. Uh, at a pretty granular level. And, and when I got into the industry of advertising, that was like, whew, okay, now there's a lot for me to unearth here. You know, there's market research to understand the human behavior. There's psychology, uh, understanding the five personality types. There's everything to do with, <clears throat> you know, behavioral science and understanding what makes people tick. And so all of these pieces and parts, and then how do you, what kind of media fits where, and, and then what media fits better with storytelling and then what's the arc of sequential messaging as it relates to keeping people uh, 
focused on a story and then the arc of the hero's journey and all these really cool pieces and parts that I don't think a lot of people understand about the ad world is that it's very sophisticated. And so for me, I really enjoyed the homework that was not only staggeringly deep, it was consistent. You never, ever stop reading when you're in the world of advertising. You're constantly learning and the machinations that happen almost on a weekly, monthly basis in the advertising world are something that keeps you on your toes. So I really loved it. And I think that's why I spent the last 20 years of my business career in it. And all of those pieces <clears throat> were part of a trying to figure out who Joey somebody was. And what I figured out at the end of my book, which is the last chapter called Coach Joey. And that was the culmination of, let's just say service to others. Because when you're coaching little kids, you're not being paid for it. So it was one of the first things in my life that I did with passion that had no transactional piece to it. It was me taking my time and my energy to try to share the wisdom of my you know, history of playing club soccer and teaching little boys who were you know, pushing each other and they couldn't tie their shoes and they couldn't possibly follow any direction as far as, you know, keeping yourself spaced in a soccer game, right? It was like an amoeba. They just kind of move around the, the ball. And, and so that was a really unique experience. I coached with two buddies, both from the Midwest. I'm from Minnesota. And, and we spent, you know, three years coaching these little kids to a championship second grade season. They were undefeated and it was my little boys both playing the team and and it was one of the greatest moments of my life just to watch all these kids feel true accomplishment. You know, we gave them medals in kindergarten and first grade for participation. And we explained that like, these are medals for you guys coming here, you know, twice a week and on weekends and you guys cooperated with one another and you learned how to play a game and you learned how to uh, compete. And I, even though the parents don't allow you to keep score, I know you guys did. <laughs> so good for you. And when the second grade medals came up, it was a different story. We were like, you guys, you earned this. You guys are eight. And that's kind of the cutoff. If you read a lot of that, it's the eight, eight and up. You got to start to like deal with reality with kids. And we said, you guys earned this. And you know, the, the, the pep talk I had before the championship game is like, this is it guys. This is your chance to have an undefeated team. I said, all the years I played sports, I was never on an undefeated team. And I said, this is your chance. Go out and play your best game. If you lose, I'm going to be very disappointed. If you get beat, I'm fine. Right? Meaning that if you go play your game and they play your, their game better than you, that's totally okay. If you give up, if you lose motivation, if you lose, that's on you. So let's focus. Let's remember who we are. Let's remember you guys are the best kids out here. There's no one that can touch you if you're on your game. And they did. They won six to one. And it was a fantastic day in my life. And I wrote about it in that chapter. And and again, it was the culmination of years of therapy and service to others that I was never part of my life. <laughs> and, and when this all happened, it was like, oh, man. And so the Joey somebody became Coach Joey. And, you know, the funny part of the narrative, because <clears throat> there's some serious chapters in there, pretty heavy ones, actually. But the majority of the book is me making fun of me for being a douchebag and, and for being insecure and pathetic and transparently so. And, and I think that part of the reason I wanted that for my little kids is I don't want them to mirror any of that behavior because it's, it's sad. And, <laughs> you 
you know, insecurity is not, it's not an attractive feature. So I think that that's something I wanted my little dudes to understand. You know, don't do these things. <laughs> There's certain things you've witnessed that I do and I do them well. Let's focus on those, but don't, don't do these things. So that's kind of where the title came from. I mean, was it cathartic for you? What's, what's your, what's your overall sense now that it's done? It was. And, you know, there's a wonderful woman named Mary Carr who wrote three memoirs of her own, who, which are uh, New York Times bestsellers. But then she wrote a book called The Art of the Memoir. And in that, she instructs any wannabe writer on what to do with memoirs. And one of the things she talks about is that you need to be honest all the time. And it doesn't mean you're necessarily truthful because, you know, human memory is flawed. But if you misrepresent anything in the book, the reader will feel it. So you really can't just manufacture stories and you can't bullshit your way through. And, and, and that's a piece of it that's very cathartic because my brother and I kind of writing as a team, I would write something and I thought it took place in like 1996. And my brother would be like, dude, that happened in 98. And, and that had, we were, we were not in Maryland. We were <laughs> in California. I'm like, oh, you know, so like there's those pieces and parts where my brother and I write in it together was cathartic. And then just getting it out, you know, like our brother's death was not something that I'd ever articulated in writing. And so when we did that, and there's a couple chapters that talk specifically to his death, that was very difficult. You know, I sobbed the whole time I wrote it. I sobbed the whole time I edited it. It was, it was never easy. My father was not easy. Uh, the abuse that he dealt out to my mother and my, my brothers was not easy. You know, so yeah, that was, it was heavy, but I think like anything else is if you look at pain, you know, there's the, there's the, there's the, there's the, differentiated discussion in Buddhism that pain is inevitable, suffering is a choice. And the idea, I think, and this is just my opinion, but, but the translation there is that life is suffering. So when you lose a sibling, as an example, you should hurt. If you truly love somebody and, and you no longer have them in your life, that hurts. So deal with it, sit with it, own it, understand why it hurts, understand the loss, and that it's gonna take some time to heal. If you bury that pain, then you will suffer. There'll be something about you that it manifests differently. It could be drug addiction. It could be alcoholism. It could be, you know, whatever distraction you want to insert here. Uh, so yeah, I think it's cathartic. And I think that in hindsight, I, I I'm, I'm very happy I did it, but there was a lot of days, weeks, months that I was really like, I, I, I just can't finish this thing. I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> and and then also the fact that you're never really happy with some of the sentences or you can't construct a paragraph. I remember spent, you know, 15 hours on a paragraph because I just couldn't get it right. And I really, I just threw it away. I just left it and then came back to it like two months later. And my brother fixed it in like eight minutes once because he's a much better writer than I am. And I was like, oh, that's why. <laughs> so there's just, you know, there's a lot of machinations. There's just a lot of stuff going on with, with, uh, with the book. But yeah, it was cathartic and I, I recommend I recommend it for that reason, because even in my own homework on the psychology of how my brain was working and the writing piece is a, is a different way of interacting with your brain. Verbalizing something is great. Writing it down 
is another way of reinforcing and then teaching it and or calling it out and talking about it is even another way past that. So you start to become far more complex in the understanding of that. And I think that with anything, like whether it's spiritual or, or ideology or anything that we're talking about in our culture today, understanding those things is the first piece. And once you can understand, then you can have some kind of dialectic tell you. And that's, part, that's the whole point of the dialectic in general. And that's part of why I enjoy my own podcast with my guests is that I'm trying to learn. And I think that's another piece of the book is that I don't really know anything as much as I want to know it. <laughs> so as I start to study it, and the bigger I study or the di deeper I dive into a subject, the bigger it gets and the least. And, the, and I feel like I've actually come up out of that knowing less. <laughs> and I think there's something to do with that, even as it relates to in introspection and in, in writing a book or specifically a memoir, you learn that you really don't know that much and it humbles you. You know, it, it brings you to a place where you're like, okay, yeah, it's not a defeatist mentality. It's just something where it's, it's more more humility based i mean have you have you ever got to be this before in your life i mean through your childhood and stuff were you able to be this person that you are today or do you think is this the truest version you've ever been of you it's by far the truest version i've ever been and and removing the personas was liberating because they're really heavy so if you're putting on a face that you kind of have all the answers and that you're this big executive and that you understand life and that everyone around you is less intelligent and or less successful, heavy quotes, it's a very heavy thing to carry around. And when I admitted to the world that I was scared at times and that I suffer from you know, anxiety, which I have my whole life, and then some episodic depression, which I talk about in a couple of the chapters, that's not fun to talk about. And <clears throat> historically, I was never into vulnerability because I, I thought it was weak. So it proved that, you know, vulnerability is a strength. And, and then when you are vulnerable to people, it's, a, it's amazing. Actually, I've shared this with other, when I was on my book tour, I, I talked with a lot of interviewers about this, but I had the first month the book was released, I probably talked to 35 buddies from the world of media. And they would reach out to me and say, hey, you know, can we talk? They would DM me or text me or whatever. And I say, yeah, let's talk, you know? And so we get on the phone and like, Dumont, man, I had no idea, you know? And I was like, yeah, well, I didn't really share that at conferences. You know, that's not the first thing I talk about. And, you know, when you meet, you meet these guys and, you know, you're at a conference in New York City and, and you flew in and you're hanging out and you're at a nice hotel and you hug it out and you're wearing a very expensive shirt and some cool jeans and some overpriced kicks. And, you know, when you meet each other, the first thing, how are you doing, man? Oh, dude, I'm killing it. Oh, me too. Boom, boom. And then you hug it out and you talk about the deal flow you got going on. And, hey, you know, I hear you guys got a new technology. You want to talk about this campaign I'm working on? And they're like, sure. You know, and so you're kind of like, it's all that weather talk. It's not, how are you really doing, dude? You know, and when I wrote the book, all these macho you know, again, highly successful dudes, they'd call me up and say things like, dude, I'm going through a, just a, a terrible divorce or my child is suffering from 
this, or I feel like I have imposter syndrome, you know, guys at my age, you know, I'm in my mid fifties now. And a lot of us in that space 20 years ago, were at kind of at the peak. We're young enough to have the energy and the, the naivete, if you will, of just getting everything done. You think you can get done. And, and then when you're in your mid fifties, if you get laid off for whatever reason, now you're in your mid fifties, you know, there's such a thing as ageism in our business. And so a couple of the guys I was talking with are scared about their careers and are they going to get back to where they once were? And, you know, these are real conversations. And I think that was really surprising for me in the sense that because I put my vulnerability on paper in writing and then threw it out to the world and said, you know, here's me, I'm a bit of a mess. It allowed these dudes to do the same thing. They let their guard down and they called me and, and we had these really cool conversations and that was really neat. And I, I think that's been one of the things that I'm exploring on my podcast too, is, you know, masculinity and what does it mean? And um, maybe we need an expanded definition of it. So that's a really long way to answer there, Pete, but I think that I am, I am the best version of myself so far. And I think the bigger piece to that is I'm, I'm a work in progress and I have a lot of work to do. Uh, uh, are you where you're supposed to be now? Yeah, I am. It's one of those things where I was younger, people, you'd, you'd see people interviewed that were in a good place in their life and they, someone would ask them, you know, do you have any regrets? And they'd say, no. And I'd be like, oh, come on. You have to have some regrets. You, you screwed things up. But what I didn't understand at the time, and maybe this comes with age, is that obviously I have regrets about people that I've hurt through my behavior or language or amalgam of therein, but I don't have any regrets because I have the wife I have and because I have the little boys that I have. And if anything in my trajectory changed in that, I wouldn't be where I am with them. And so that's, I found that, you know, and it sounds Pollyanna, but I'm genuinely and madly in love. And that's a big thing. I, my focus every single day is through the lens of my wife and my children. Like, what am I going to do? And then why am I doing it? And then how do I need to get it done? And then what is, what is success look like? And previous to that, you know, most of my life was everything was transactional. How is it going to benefit me? What kind of German car can I buy? What kind of Swiss watch can I buy? <laughs> what new suit can I buy? You know, it was always kind of tied to some really happy piece maybe as opposed to joyful. So, you know, a raise is cool. Bonuses are cool. Uh, stuff is cool. I love cars. So like, I still love cars and, and they give me more joy than anything at a materialistic pleasure, but they do not in themselves bring you any happiness or any joy. If, if they can buttress a happy life, they can't make one. If you were to phrase it, I suppose, I mean, I'm curious to know why, why now? Why not when you were 40? Why not when you were 30? You know, the, to switch from the outer game to the inner game. What happened to trigger that? I tried. <laughs> so when I was 30, my dad embezzled all my money. So I went into business with my dad when I was 30. And I had a good, pretty good run in my 20s as a salesman in something called litigation support. And so we were selling software solutions to really large, complex 
litigations. So if an insurance company was being sued, as an example, they have a seven-year retention requirement to keep records. And so if a company's being sued, for, let's just say breast implant litigation, those are some of the cases I handled back then. And Dow Corning would be a, a defendant and they have all these records in a warehouse in the middle of nowhere. And so the plaintiff attorneys say, I want all your records. They then hire a company like the one I worked for, where we'd go into these warehouses and we'd scan all of these boxes. They have boxes of documents, about 3,000 pages of box. And you scan them into a piece of hardware and then it, it breaks them up on some software. And then you bibliographically code those things and, and put a whole database together and you give it to the defense counsel and they share all this information as work product and blah, blah, blah. So I was selling that. My dad went to law school and he wanted to start a business with me. And so we started this business together after he got out. And about a year into it, he embezzled all my money, <laughs> which my mom told me was going to happen. And my brother told me, why would you go into business with this lunatic? And I was like, oh. And so at the age of 30, I was upside down about six figures. I had a Range Rover I couldn't even afford to sell because I owed more on the car than it was worth. I was evicted from my house because I was paying my dad rent for his condominium. He lived in another apartment. He was not paying the rent that I was paying to him. And so I found out, and I found out <laughs> he was embezzling my money because a BMW dealership called me and said, hi, Joey, we need you to come down and co-sign for your dad's car. <laughs> I was like, what? So I said, can you put my dad on the phone? You know, and I said, dad, what are you doing? And like, we don't have any money and you're trying to buy an $80,000 BMW. This is insane. And then I went, and this was in 1996. And so then I called the bank and I had him give me the, bad news on what the accounts looked like because I hadn't paid attention to him for a while. And, and so after all that, my whole life exploded. Like as a 30-year-old guy who was completely immersed in his stuff and his personas and trying to impress nameless, faceless people, which is pathetic, I collapsed. It was like everything just went away and I didn't have anything to touch. You know, I was now unemployed. I owed everybody money. I had no job. My credit cards were maxed out. <laughs> I remember trying to fill my stupid Range Rover with my credit card and on the LED screen is rejected. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I can't even afford to fill the car. And I just started laughing like a, like a maniac. And this young lady was sitting next to me and she, she thought it was pretty funny until she realized I was probably kind of in the throes of a nervous breakdown. And I think she kind of just rolled up the window. And... But I share that with you because... <laughs> Because I, at that point, I went to my friend Kimmy's house and uh, I said, the jig is up. The super confident guy I pretend to be bullshit. I'm scared. I don't know what I'm going to do. And she said, oh, honey, you know, come here. And so she, she brought me in her house and cooked me chocolate chip cookies. And we watched a terrible rom-com and she just let me vent. And then she told me about something called Spirit Rock, which is a little meditation retreat up here in Northern California. And, and then she told me about MDD, you know, which major depressive disorder, which I didn't have, but she said, you know, you have symptoms of episodic depression and you need to understand what's happening in your brain. And so that year I started reading spiritual texts. I started reading, I read the Bhagavad Gita. I read the, the Tripitaka. I read the Quran. I even read, read the Bible for my mom. Cause she was very sad that I was reading all these other texts and she's a Catholic. And the neat thing about all these texts and, and spiritual literature in general is that there's one theme 
that seems to cascade across all of them, which is to be present. Not worry about the history of your past and not worry about the future of your existence. And if you can just stay present, you can keep the demons at bay. You can keep catastrophizing at bay, those kind of things. And, and so I started rock climbing. And I, I remember going to this gym and learning the holds and doing all this cool thing. And as a competitive athlete, I really liked it. And I got really good at it. And then I started going outside. I meet some guys at the, at the gym and they'd say, hey, we're going to go climb Yosemite in three weeks. Do you want to go? Like, yeah, you know. And so I, I remember these guys didn't know me from Adam and they invited me to live with them in their van. And we went to Yosemite and we climbed Half Dome, which was an amazing experience in itself. But I always remember just eating chili, you know, out of cans with buns and burners and smoking dope and just chilling out with these dudes. And, and not one of them asked me what I did. You know, there wasn't like, what do you do for a living or what kind of car do you drive? And, you know, we're all wearing like raggy sweatpants and, you know, shoving our feet in these little shoes to get on the wall. And all we would do is go out every morning and, and look for problems, what they call them. So if you look at a climb, you, all right, the biggest problem is here, you know, getting from this area here and that's a dyno move and you can fall off here. And, you know, and I just remember that whole year, I didn't do anything. I just kind of checked out and I didn't really have any right to do so. I had, I owed everybody money and <laughs> some deep shit, but I was in bigger turmoil internally. I was like, I'm a mess. I don't understand what's going on. This world is much different than I anticipated. And I just, I failed miserably in it. And so I need to kind of reboot. And, and I, I did, I had a great year. And then I was like, I got to go back to work. And so I went back to work and got another big sales job and started making a bunch of money again. And I bought another German car and, <laughs> you know, and I kind of went back into that. And then, as I shared already, I got back into the advertising world when I was about 36. And that's when I found myself for the first time in the corporate landscape. And it was the greatest 20 years of my life. And I really enjoyed it. And then when I had this time again, this last four years to reflect the same, the same literature somehow made its way back to my brain. You know, I started reading all of these same texts that I hadn't looked at for years. And I started reading a lot of psychology and I started reading a lot of, you know, things about human nature. And we talked about Dr. Jonathan Haidt, one of my, he's a social psychologist who's written a lot of really cool books. And I started reading his literature again and, and understanding the human psyche and why we do things and why our cultures do things and why ideologies exist. And and how all of that happens. And, and so now I come back to what I actually learned 24 years ago, you know, which was a very salient lesson for me at the time, which is be present. If you're present, your life is good, you know, no matter what's going on, you know, it's, you can, you can enjoy life a lot more if you're not catastrophizing about things that should have taken place or should not have taken place or what's going to take place. Because with a mind like mine, that one's really rich, that can go sideways pretty quick <laughs> and you got to be careful with it. Do, do you find you, you sort of have to put the brakes on yourself a lot to, to, for people to get to almost as well? Yeah. I, and as you, as witnessed from this, you know, interview so far, I'm, I, I get, I talk a lot and I, and uh, sometimes I talk about subjects that are kind of out there, you know, but my my dear friends know 
you know, my, my thought patterns and how I think and why I think the way I think. And, and, uh, they're patient or tolerable. My wife just kind of smiles once and then just kind of touches me on the leg. I love you, babe. But, you know, stop reading today. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. <clears throat> What's your earliest conscious memory? It was playing in the yard. I was probably four. We were in my childhood home playing football with my older brother and my dad. That was the first one I remember. A lot. I mean, there's a lot of sport, it seems, in your, in your life. It's just always been there. Very activity yep. generated, always outdoors. I was... I, I was well, they, they, the vernacular back then was hyperactive. That was what they categorized me as a kid. Today it's ADHD. And, but I was very active and, and sports was my outlet. I could go run all day long. And, and then when I did, I could sleep. If I didn't, if I was not active during the day, I couldn't sleep. So sports was a wonderful outlet just for the physical. I had to go do stuff. And same thing today. I work out four or five days a week because it's good for my mental it it helps this helps the carnival calm down a little bit. And, uh, so yeah, activity has always been very important for me specifically. What was money Joey like then? I mean, through your, your early, early years, if we had met you, who would we meet? If you met me, how old? Okay. Let's take you to seven, seven years. Hmm. Same thing. I was, my dad was still home. My older brother is a year older. My little brother was born. He was a year old at that point. And we had, a, we had all the optics of a very happy Minnesota family. You know, my dad was an insurance adjuster. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. We lived in a three-bedroom Rambler in Rochester, Minnesota. Our neighborhood was full of engineers from IBM and doctors and nurses from the Mayo Clinic. And it was very idyllic. You know, barbecues and tag and come home when the street lights come on and and uh it was wonderful as far as i remember and you know my brother and i wrote about that we had a very cool as we saw it childhood it, it was good my little brother didn't that changed for him my dad left one a year later okay so he probably doesn't remember any of that at all does he he doesn't remember my father at all because mm. my dad my dad spent 10 year, 10 days a year with us after he left so my little brother never knew him. Hmm. And that was part of his problem. Ignoring a child, as I learned in psychology, is worse than hating them. It causes more trauma to the brain. Yeah. You can't fathom it, right? It's not, it's not lack. You can't what, sir? I'm sorry. They just can't fathom it. It's No, they can't. Exactly. They, they can't understand why a parent would ignore them. Hmm. It's not something. And he didn't. He started dealing with his problems by self, self-medicating at the age of nine. He started drinking alcohol, sneaking it. And because my stepfather at the time was a raging alcoholic, no one noticed. You know, if there was, mm. We don't drink in my house, but if we did, I would notice a bottle of vodka that <laughs> was gone in six days. <clears throat> I would notice that. And we didn't mm. notice it in my house. There was you know, yelling and screaming and door slamming and booze and cigarettes and dysfunction at just gross levels. So 
yeah, he was not seen or heard. And then sadly, and I think that's another part of the book is that why I wanted to write it is I wanted other people to feel less alone. There's a lot of people in our culture that grow up with exactly the same behaviors. You know, the good news, bad news about the memoir is that it's not atypical. There's tens of millions of people out there that grew up with the same dysfunction I did. And every single chapter touches on it. And that's why the reviews have been very similar from literary people to just everyday readers. They all say the same thing. I laughed, I cried, I cringed. I felt like someone saw me or I felt like someone understood me for the first time with this kind of thing. And that was, that was typical of, I think, a lot of kids. And for me, you know, my upbringing was, it seemed normal at the time. <laughs> you don't know. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah, that's your truth, right? Because that's when you're standing in it, you don't know any better. Mm -mm. Hmm. It's, this is what people do. Hmm. When you're eight, specifically, you don't know anything. Yeah. I'd argue that I don't know much that much now. So it's... <laughs> <clears throat> What was Joey going to do when he grew up? What was the original plan? Well, that's a, my friend Kimmy and I laughed about this. The friend I just mentioned who took me in and gave me a hug when I needed it. She's one of my best friends. And we were sitting in the hot tub in college. She said, what are you going to do when you get older? I said, I'm going to be a big executive and I'm going to make a lot of money and I'm going to marry a beautiful woman and I'm going to have a German car. <laughs> and we've laughed about that a lot. And the fact that I am married to a beautiful, accomplished, wonderful human being, and I do have a nice German car in my garage, and I, I did do a job that I loved. There was some cool, you know, foreshadowing there, and there's that whole thought, word, deed piece to your brain. If you think something, you know, and then you articulate it, then it's possible to manifest. And I think that I did that correct. I think what I talk about in the book and I've talked about in other interviews is that where I went wrong is that my heroes were assholes. And so if your heroes are assholes, who do you become? And I became an asshole in certain ways. And what I mean by that is that in society, you know, back in the eighties, we grew up in the business world when, when I was in high school and college, you know, we looked up to guys like Larry Ellison and Steve jobs and Donald Trump actually was a business person, heavy quotes, but he was, and he wrote a book at the time, which again, he didn't write, but called the art of the deal. And I read it, you know, in college and I said, I want to be like this guy <laughs> couldn't not have been more wrong in any area of my life. But it, I did look up to these guys because they had money. And when you read, you know, Walter Isaacson wrote a brilliant book on Steve jobs called jobs. And it was, by any standard of measurement, a very unflattering portrayal of Steve Jobs as more of a mercurial prick and terrible father and difficult, cantankerous husband. And, and I, we worked with them in the agency world, and, and he was very difficult to work with. And people that worked at Apple were terrified of him. And this is the guy we looked up to. We still do. We, he's a deity in San Francisco and, and the valley in which I live. And and now we have the same thing with, you know, Elon Musk, who I don't know from Adam, so I can't speak to his actual um, character. But what you see on, on online, and you know, he's got five kids, and he works 130 hours a week, and he brags about it. And you're like, okay, so if any of your boys are writers, 
you ain't coming out too good, dude, you know, because they don't know who you are. And yes, you, you actually fly rockets to space and I think that's super cool. And you're a genius and that's cool. But is, is that the guy I want my kids to look up to, you know, or do I want to look up to their third grade teacher? You know, my, my uh, third grade teacher, Mr. Lee was California teacher of the year last year. And, and he's invisible in our culture. And he can't even afford to live in San Francisco because, you know, they don't pay him enough. And it's just one of those things where, to me, that guy's a hero. He went to graduate school. He, you know, my, my kids go to Mandarin Immersion School and he speaks fluent, fluent Mandarin and he loves children and he focuses his whole life on kids. And then I, I never paid attention to guys like that before. They were invisible to me. And so I think as I got older, you start to look at different people and you're like, all right, <laughs> that's someone I want to emulate. I want to be more like that dude. I don't want to be like Steve Jobs, you know? And I think that just took me a long time to get there. And, you know, if I can bring someone's awareness to that through my book or my podcast or even interviews like this, that's cool. Because this, our culture teaches the wrong things, I think. And if you ask, here's, a, here's an example. If, if I said to you that someone was successful, what would you think I meant? Hmm. Well, I suspect the traditional answer would be, you know, rich financially. Yeah. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, your brain would not go, oh, so they're a Buddhist hmm. or they're a teacher or they're a social worker. You know, that's not in our culture. It's not indoctrinated that way. It's success is financially related. Hmm. And so we look up to people who have money for some strange reason. And I think if someone made the money on their own and they did it ethically and morally and, and have done good things with it, that's cool. Then that's a part of the character that you can look up to. But someone just made a lot of money. It doesn't mean they're a good person. It means they have aptitude. It means they have conscientiousness. It means they have intelligence possibly, but it doesn't mean they're a good person. And so for me, that's kind of reframing what that looks like. And that's just part of my, my tutorial to my kids and what they need to kind of assess in human beings and what they look like and, and how they act are, are not necessarily tied. Like success should not be tied to one metric, put it mm -hmm. that way. A univariate analysis is usually a dangerous thing. Multivariate analysis of a human being is just as necessary as it is to anything else. You know, who are they and what are they and why are they, as opposed to how much money they have in their bank account. Are you fundamentally a good person? I mean, I've integrated the shadow. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. I, I am not. I, I don't, I've had a lot of moments where I've done really terrible things. I have a really bad temper. I used to fight in martial arts. And I didn't even talk about it in the book because it was too uh, triggering. But I have been in many fights over the years. And uh, the last one I got into was in Brazil with my wife when we were engaged. And uh, that's why I started therapy. So am I a good person? I'm trying to be, but you know, there's, there's a duality within all human beings that I don't think a lot of people like to talk about, but it's there, you know, there's good and bad wrapped in all of us. And, and then that's, that's Carl Jung in general is how do you, how do you weave the shadow in? How do you integrate it? It's not that you're going to expel it from your being. It's there. It's part of who you are, part of our nature. 
you know, if you look at evolutionary biology as an example, they always talk about the bonobos and, and different sects that we're kind of tied to and how they were this wonderful society. And they're not, you know, the, the, the most bonobos as an example would go out on hunts and they would go around the periphery of their territory. And if they saw anyone there, even people they recognized as friends, but they had somehow moved into their territory, they would literally rip their arms off. I mean, they would tear them apart because they had the physical strength to do so. And, you know, these, this is our lineage. Obviously, there's the Athropithecus africanus and then the afarensis, and there's that like <laughs> fork. You know, we came out of this one. But the idea there is that I think that we're all integrated with good and evil. How do you deal with it? You know, I'm getting better. I don't, I don't have the malevolence I used to have towards the world. I think I'm, I'm moving in the right direction. But yeah, I think I'm both. Do you ever see yourself being able to utilize the energy of the dark side as such? Oh, yeah, yeah. Protecting my family. It's the reason I stay in shape. It's the reason I took martial arts. There's a lot of violence in San Francisco, specifically towards Asian people right now. My wife is Chinese. My little boys are half Chinese. And uh, yeah, my wife feels safe. You know, we're walking around together. She knows there's a piece of me that will defend her to my death. And, and that's not something she wants to talk about, but there's, to me, that level of violence is never good, but in protectionary uh, endeavors, it, it is. Mm. No, super interesting. And that level of, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, it, it's almost, is there, is there an element of the sort of, you know, the, the chase and the kill, the chase and the kill, you know, because imagine with advertising and things like that, it's, it's, it's that same type mantra or that same type process, right? You know, oh, when yeah. the business chasing chase the, the deal. Hmm. Yeah. It's intoxicating. Is it the chase <laughs> or the kill? Both. The chase is more fun, but the kill is amazing and it's short lived but it's awesome and it's powerful. I mean, I actually literally thump my chest. Sometimes when we close a deal, I'd walk out on the floor after I got off the phone with the client, you know, they awarded us the deal and I would walk out onto the floor where all the talent was. And I'd be like, we got it, you papa, you know, and everyone would yell and scream and I'd go, whoa, you know, and it was just, it was very primal. It was, it was awesome. And, and that level of energy, that's why I love the creative business in general, is that it's full of like-minded individuals. And I think a lot of people in the industry are into the same arc, the hero's journey, the you know, triumph over tragedy, the storytelling aspect of the business. So I think we all appreciate it at the same time. And I, I always love that. And you know, after the big win, however, you know, then you need to like <laughs> focus because now you got to get that whole team on board and you got to get the client meetings scheduled and you have deadlines now, lots of them, and you need to meet those. So, you know, that's the real work, but I loved it, loved it. And I miss it. I really miss it. I don't miss the 80 hour weeks, <laughs> to be clear. 
but I, I do miss the the cooperation and the teamwork and the love of of the team and the integration of a really powerful creative storytelling team to a really cool brand that wants to, you to tell their stories. That's a really cool thing. When when was the time or when is the time to get you in the room? And when's the time to get you out of the room? Me personally? Hmm. Well, I was the pitch guy as mentioned. So I don't have a lot of talent in the traditional sense of in advertising, you have creative people. So the actual artists that build the, the videos and drawings and, and artwork. And then you have the technologists who weave in the technology necessary for digital advertising and, and the like. And then you have strategists, people that think about the content of what you're building and how it's utilized and purposed and shared. And then you have the account teams that manage all of that work with the client. And you have the project management group that is doing the detail orientation on that. And as the managing director, my job was to sell these wonderful people to the brand and then to go out and hire additional people necessary to keep them functioning and then to hug them when they need a hug and to push them when they need a push. And so for me, I think my most important area was to kind of be at the bottom of the inverted pyramid so that the, my function was probably the least important after the sale. And my whole job at that point was to interact with the client to make sure that they felt the love of the agency and then interact with the team to make sure they have what they need, whether it's tools, software, additional staff, a hug, because uh, they, need, they need lots of them, by the way. Creative people are sensitive and they really appreciate being treated like a human being versus a resource. You know, human resource is a tough name to, to be inside of a company, in my opinion. Uh, if you treat them like an asset or a resource, they feel it. And, and so for me, my biggest purpose was to make these folks feel loved and appreciated for the ridiculous hours that they put in and the amount of focused, concerted energy necessary to be successful in that career. That was probably where I sat best. And it was on the sidelines. I, was, I wasn't leading the troops. I was kind of one of the undergirds trying to help them. It's kind of almost like a, yeah, it's sort of being slightly invisible, slightly. Yeah, I think that in the sense of being really good at what I was good at, understanding what you're good at. You know, if, if you hire a creative person in my capacity as a managing director and then you oversee that creative, then you hired the wrong person because that person's not doing their job. And if I have to oversee the contractual obligations, I hired the wrong account person. And if I have to oversee the strategy, I hired the wrong strategist. And obviously I can hardly spell technology. So there's no way I could oversee the technologist. But the idea there is that you hire these subject matter experts for a reason, and then you let them go. And you know, if they want to come in at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning and work until one or two in the morning, who cares? If you want to wear a bathrobe to work, who cares? I don't care. Like as long as you're getting your job done, I'll buy you the bathrobes. <laughs> 
I'll buy you the pizza at 2 a.m. I'll, you know, whatever it takes to help facilitate the amount of amazing work you guys are putting together, I will do. And so, yeah, just being on the periphery, making sure that shit's getting done. It's kind of like just a coach. You're not playing in the game, but you orchestrated the game and you've trained the kids to do their job and to stay in their positions and to do what they're taught to do and to cooperate with one another in the goal, pardon the pun, of winning. The same thing with an advertising agency is that you're coordinating a bunch of really talented people that may or may not work well without a leader. You know, there's a lot of personalities in there. There's a lot of ego in there. And, and then same thing on the brand side, you know, if you're working with a really big brand, you have marketing managers, you have marketing people, you have brand people, you have leadership, you have procurement, which are the ones that are helping you with all your contracts and master service agreements and all of those things. And so there's a lot of ego in that and, and navigating that I was very good at. I'm, I'm just, I love people and you can't fake that. If you love people, they know it, they feel it. And, uh, you know, again, I was, on, I was kind of tucked away in different pockets, but I was always there. I was present. How was your ego amongst all this? How was it then? How is it now? I mean, my ego is huge. <laughs> so I was very proud of myself. And, but to the point where, as I shared, I think on the pre-call, my buddies would rip on me because I would call myself a douchebag. If someone said, dude, you're being such a douchebag. I'm like, I'm not a douchebag. I'm the douchebag. Get it right. You know, and kind of playing with myself there. And I also was under the false belief at the time that if I softened my ego or if I softened my arrogance, that it would be to my detriment. And that proved to be incorrect. I think as I got older, my ego, it still exists, but it's in check. You know, I give it noogies all the time when it tries to rear its head. And, and I'm, I don't think, I mean, I definitely have bouts of arrogance because when I'm insecure, I feel insecure about things. I puff up and I get arrogant. But for the most part, I'm confident, you know, I, I've achieved the things I want to achieve in my life. So that's, that's a big piece of it is that the accomplishments, meaning that I'm happy and I have a wonderful family and I'm healthy. And those are, that's where the confidence comes from. And then being out of the work environment for four years, you know, even as I mentioned earlier, talking to a lot of my buddies about, you know, their careers and how they feel like they're moving in the wrong direction now because they're getting older and they can't put in the 70 hours a week anymore because they got family commitments and, they want to see their kids' soccer games and they want to, you know, listen to the birds in the trees once in a while. Um, that, that changes things. And so for me, my confidence exists because of what I mentioned. I, I'm, I'm in a good place. And so when I actually do, and if I do go back, whatever I'm going to do in the corporate world next year, I haven't decided, but I have a lot of offers to come back and work. And then I have a lot of opportunities. I'm being asked to speak a lot now. Um, I just can't accept the offers yet because <laughs> the world's still a bit of a mess with the pandemic. And, and I got two little kids that are unvaccinated. So I was asked to speak at a conference in November in Florida. And I was very excited about that. And then when this thing reared its head, I was like, yeah, no, I got I to gotta hold off until my kids are vaccinated at least. And, and I share that because when I do go back into whatever I'm going to do, I'm doing that with the utmost confidence. I have 
very little doubt. I mean, there's some because that always exists, but I'm very confident that I can go back and do what I want to do with my career for the remaining years I've left. You know, whether that's eight, ten years, I'm not sure how much longer I want to work, but I like what I do. You ever thought of going lone wolf, going going yourself? Yeah, I'm actually taking a speakers bureau course right now um, for the next year. And uh, it's like a business school online thing. And, and uh, it's teaching me how to go out and do these speeches and get paid for them. Because I've spoken at conferences my whole life and advertising, but I never got paid for it because it was for me to get on stage and talk about a cool campaign that we just did or a documentary that we just shot, things like that. It was good for me. Cause I'd come off the stage and clients would say, Hey, can we hire you guys? <laughs> I'm like, sure. That'd be great. So it was, it was, again, it was transactional. Um, and now if I, what I want to go out and do now is go out and talk about, I want, I want the business world to be, and this is the early stages of this. So yeah, I, I, I want to go back into the world of business and talk specifically about the stuff we were talking about in the, in the pre-call. I have a, my podcast right now is interviewing subject matter experts about things like masculinity, men's mental health, uh, safe space on colleges, critical race theory, defund the police, gender identity. What does that mean? You know, all of these things that are kind of part and parcel to our culture have now leached into the business of the corporate landscape. So as I mentioned, I had two professors on, two professors, one from uh, used to be at Berkeley and one was at University of San Francisco to talk about Dr. Jonathan Haidt's thesis on the coddling of the American mind, which was his book that went into deep detail on, on what's going on with the ideology of colleges and why there's needed safe space for these young men and women due to ideology and, and emotional harm, things like that. And these are the young men and women now that are entering the workforce and you're seeing spikes in HR complaints and division within corporate ranks specific to politics even. And so I think what I'm gonna probably end up doing next year if I follow my, my passion is to go out and coach some of these leaders in corporate America. And again, specific to my experience, I'll go out and coach people in the world of media. I'm not gonna go out and coach, <laughs> you know, scientists and academics, but people that I know in the field and the people that know me in the field. And I can say, hey, things are changing. Here's, here's how and here's why. And here's how I think we need to tackle these, you know, as leaders. And so when I do go back into the workplace, that's, that's where I am right now. And maybe that changes in the next year, but. That's my focus right now because it's very similar to what I used to do as a, as a managing director of an agency is that I get to think macro. I don't have to dive too deep into any one subject. I'm a generalist uh, just by personality. And so I want to understand as much as I can about these things and, and, and bring these very complex issues to the fore with a dialectic that is not combative. I don't want you know, the us versus them thing is very problematic for me. And I think we're as a culture have become very tribal. The United States has proven that tribalism is dangerous. 
we're beginning to prove that ideology is dangerous. We're, we're like a big case study right now of how not to act <laughs> as human beings. And I think another reason that I stand kind of in the middle of that is that I grew up poor and I grew up in a rural area. So a lot of my relatives are big fans of Donald Trump, as an example. Uh, none of these people have I disowned or blocked or called bigots or racists. They have a very different understanding of the world than I do. And what I've done very purposely is to understand or try to understand why they believe what they believe. And the same thing with some of my high school friends who believe that Donald Trump was a good leader. And I, I couldn't disagree more, but the idea of understanding why they believe what they believe has been a big piece to my understanding. And doing that is studying things from the right, reading literature from conservative pundits and people that understand true conservatism, not, you know, Trumpism. And if you understand, and this is why I like Dr. Jonathan Haidt, because he wrote a book called Why Good People Are Divided by Religion and Politics. Uh, the Righteous Mind is the name of the book. And he himself, as a psychologist, will get into things like personality traits and how those work. So a couple examples, if you're a conservative, historically, you care about sanctity and order because they're very important to you. And so the flag is a big discussion and pro-life is a very big discussion and church and religion are big discussions. And then if you're on the left, your hierarchy of values really surrounds things like value, like uh, harm and fairness and how you come at the world. And so he uses a really cool analogy of the elephant in our life is the emotion that we carry with us with any given topic. And the rider, us, on top of the elephant, is logic and reason. And so what happens if someone says to me, Donald Trump, now my first reaction is to sway to the left because my emotion doesn't like him. And I disagree with him. And so the rider then is engaged in this post hoc logic and reason assessment, but it's really just justifying my swing to the left. And what we need to do as a culture, and what I think that the business world can work well for this, is because in the business world, we don't block clients because they wear a red hat. So let me be clear on that. I've had major clients that disagree with me on politics. And we would go to dinner and they'd make fun of me for being a liberal and I'd laugh at them for being a conservative and then we'd have a cocktail and we'd laugh it out. And then we talk about our kids or we talk about soccer or football or whatever it would be, but we could table it because we were human beings and we're adults. And you know, if I walked out on a stage today, I would ask that question to the audience. I would say, hey, how many of you fired your largest client last year because she wore a red hat? You know, no one's gonna raise their hand because it just doesn't happen. If you have a, a client in the world of advertising that pays you $20 million a year in fees, and you have a team of 35 people on that client, you're not going to stand on your principles or your ideology and say, I'm firing this client because they have a different political perspective than I do. You just don't do it. I mean, for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's catastrophic to the team because you have to lay off 35 people because your, your ideology superseded that of all these people's paychecks. And or the agency as a whole is no longer the same was because you lost a whole bunch of culture. And there's a lot of things manufactured into that decision where it's kind of the same thing where 
And my brother is a family attorney. And his client said to him one day when he beat up his wife, he said, I just couldn't control myself. And he said, no, you can control yourself. You just had the power in the situation. So you didn't control yourself. If you were at a bar and a guy who was six foot eight, 280 pounds, picked the fight with you, you could talk your way out of it, <laughs> right? You, you, would you be uncontrolled? I can't control myself. I'm going to attack this guy who's twice my size. You know, those, those kind of things. And I think that this long-winded babble here is that for me, the world of business can actually start to be a beacon, if you will, on how we need to act as a culture. We have to stop hating each other because of blue and red. And we have to start to understand one another. It doesn't mean you have to agree with each other. It just means you have to understand each other. I think that's a big piece of what not only leadership looks like moving forward in the business world, but I think as a whole, uh, our politicians today are proving that their behavior as a collective is untenable and disastrous as it relates to results. Yeah. So it's coming back to you. I mean, where do you sit? I mean, do you like yourself? Do you love yourself? Where, where are you now with yourself? I have no more self-loathing. I shouldn't say none. I have some. But what I think I touched on last time was that for me, I didn't love myself. And so I would distract myself with, you know, alcohol. My buddies and I would go out and we'd get bottle service, you know, at a bar, which for those of you who don't know what that is, it's a, it's a full douchebag move where you walk into a bar and you pay $2,000 to be seated at a ridiculous table and they serve you vodka that they charge you $600 a bottle for and some appetizers and they have people that wait on you hand and foot. So, you know, you project yourself in the club as the guy, you know, and I was good at that. <laughs> so I spent a lot of money on bottle service with my buddies uh, I stayed at a lot of penthouses. I did drugs, drank too much, slept with too many women. Uh, all just, you know, all distractions, all tied to self-loathing. And in hindsight, those are things that, you know, I'm not em embarrassed. It's probably a strong word. I'm not proud of it. Let's just say that. And I don't, I don't replicate that in any area of my life anymore. And so yeah, I think I, I love myself in the sense that my therapist taught me to love myself. Not that I think I'm better than other people. So I've gotten to that point where I don't think I'm better than anybody. But then conversely, I also don't think anyone else is better than me. I think we're all here and we're all equal, at least on the spiritual front. And so I think I'm, I'm getting there. And as I'm trying to teach and instruct my little dudes, they're doing the same thing back to me now. So my computer has always been an issue for me. I'm not technically proficient. And if things go wrong, I'll be like, Oh my God. You know, <laughs> And I'll yell at my computer. And I watched my seven-year-old do that when his zoom meeting went sideways with his class. And he's like, ah, and I said, Oh, whoa, 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 dude. <laughs> like, no, man, you can't do that. You're just, you're mimicking your daddy and that's my fault. I'm sorry. And I said, what you need to understand about that kind of behavior is that that's your brain taking over. And you have to remind yourself that you're in charge of your brain. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, just pretend your brain's your computer. And if your computer starts to, like, to act up, just shut it. 
just reboot it. He's like, okay, daddy. And so he, he remembers that because he was six or five when I first talked about that. And then, you know, fast forward six months, I yell at my computer again. <laughs> and my son will come out and say, daddy, who's in charge of your brain? <laughs> I'm like, all right, dude, good one. You know, you're right. I overreacted. And so I think that's another piece of the vulnerability thing where my father and my father's father before him would never admit that they didn't know something or that they made a mistake. And that is a typical day-to-day -day thing with my kids. They see me make mistakes a lot. They see me admit those mistakes. And, and I think that's a really healthy relationship, not just for my kids, but for me too, to, to grow as a human being and to be more gentle with myself. That's another thing my therapist taught me a lot is to be gentle with yourself. It's hard out there. So don't be too hard on yourself. Obviously don't love yourself to the point of arrogance, but don't, don't be hard on yourself either. There's a book called Confidence, and I don't remember much of the book at all, but that was the name of the book. And what I do remember is that they said confidence is the sweet spot between arrogance and despair. Arrogance thinking too much of yourself and despair thinking too little. And I thought that was a very cogent explanation of the word. And I think I'm getting there. It's a process, right? Yeah. It's a process. A long one. <laughs> mm. Adventures, what, what was more therapeutic for you as such was, uh, or cathartic? Was it the book or the therapy? Therapy. No question. The book was not possible without the therapy. Right. And that was part of what I was mentioning before with Mary Carr's advice from her book, The Art of Memoir. She actually said, and I forgot to mention this, that if you, <clears throat> not only do you have to be honest about what you write, if you have a traumatic childhood and you decide to write on it without doing the actual necessary therapy, you will have a possible psychic collapse, depending on how traumatic your upbringing was. And so the therapy was the first time I sat down and discussed this every Wednesday at five o'clock for eight years. And she was phenomenal. She was a psychologist who understood deviant behavior. So she understood my dad his abuse. I remember we started talking, she'd ask me questions and I'd say, she'd say, did your dad do this? I was like, yeah. Did your dad do this? Yeah. How did you know this? <laughs> She's like, well, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist. <laughs> okay. Good answer. You know, but she taught me how my brain worked. She taught me what my hippocampus was doing. She taught me why it was doing it. She taught me why my right brain fired differently than my left brain. She taught me all these things. And then from that, you know, I could dive into my own homework. And when I started studying psychology, you know, at a deeper level, it was it even enhanced my career. That's another thing that's cool about knowledge in any way is that it's transmittable and it's transferable. You know, you can, you can move it around and it, it can benefit you in many different ways. And, and studying of psychology, it's a running joke with psychologists in general is that most of them go to school to self-diagnose. So most of them are nuts, but you know, if you can find a good psychologist, which I did, um, she proved very beneficial to my life. I actually sent her a copy of my book and let her know how much I love her and thanked her for all her tutelage. And, and she's fantastic. I mean, just, she's one of my favorite people on this planet. I don't hang out with her. She's not like my friend. I just, I have a very soft spot for her and what she did for me. It's reassuring, isn't it? One 
that somebody can sort of go, yeah, that's, I can put a label on that collection of ideas. This, you know, when crazy shit's going down, it's like, yeah, this is the behavior. This is why it's happening. It's like, okay, I get you now, right? Yes. A diagnosis is much, much better than the anxiety of the unknown. Mm. And I think that's with anything. Uh, Anybody who's ever had a, you know, HIV test (laughs) and the doctor says, you know, leaves you a message. Hey, got your HIV test. I'm heading out for uh, vacation. See you in a week. (laughs) You're like, oh, come on. (laughs) No, man, I can't. No, no, no. I need to know. You know, we'd actually rather know what it was because if you actually did find out you had something wrong, you can then work on the, on the remedy as opposed to just this, you know, maelstrom of thoughts that, would definitely occur for me that would, would just run me over. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, it's good to know. I like, I think that's why I like to read it. I like to understand things. The, the reading that you did do in, in regards to spiritual text, I mean, was, was that a, were you seeking to confirm or were you seeking to learn? Um, I, I grew up in the Catholic church and I had a lot of, let's just say venom for the church. I, that specific patriarchy, and I'm not attacking patriarchies as a whole, but that patriarchy failed their number one duty, which was to protect children. So that bothered me. The hypocrisy of just shuffling around the, the priests and not paying attention, moving them from one church to the other, uh, not letting women be priests, having this you know, very, very atavistic belief on human culture and how it's supposed to react and interact and all those pieces. I also didn't like the fact that like my best friend when I was growing up was Jewish. And so he wasn't part of the chosen ones. And, and I remember being terrified and crying because, you know, when, when God did come down <laughs> and, and, grab all the chosen ones. My friend couldn't go with me. I mean, just things like that to me were traumatizing and I wasn't overly impressed. Let's just say that with the, the amalgam of the church. But what I found out later and what I believe not only with the Bible, but most spiritual literature and most religious literature is that there's metaphorical truths and the stories themselves have purpose. And whether it's, you know, the garden of Eden or Cain and Abel or, or the Vedas within the Hindu Bible or Buddha and his, his transformation, you know, from the prince and leaving his throne behind and, and going out in search of the truth. Those are all really cool stories, you know, and, and the metaphorical truths embedded in all of them are, I think, are very applicable to what we're doing here, which is to try to find center, to try to be the best person we can and to a live of life of love and morals and serving of others. And, you know, all the things are the same. And I think that's what I really enjoyed about them is that they, I don't think I was trying to unlearn or maybe re-educate, but I think as I've already shared with you, my goal with anything is to understand it. And then for once I can understand it the best I can, then I can make decisions. And until I, until I do, I can't. And that's the one thing I learned about is that, this is just my opinion, but religions 
are like maps and they're all top, top, like a topographical map will show you how to get to a destination. And, and so, you know, Catholicism or Christianity can take you down this path through this little serpentine valley. And, and then the, the Gita can take you through this path. And, and then the Chipitaka can take you through this path and the Quran can take you here. And, and if you look at all these things kind of intersecting, they all end up at the same place, which is presence. And presence is exactly what we talked about. It's like, are you here now? And Ram Das famously said, be here now. That's his thing. And it's not just literature. It's the, it's the gurus. You know, the Paramahasa Yogananda was one of the first guys that I followed who was a Hindu. And he did a wonderful translation of the Gita, which helped me understand all the stories much better because number one, I don't read Sanskrit. So the translations themselves are a little bit off. And his was wonderful. And I absorbed it. I've read it probably from cover to cover a couple times and then read the stories within it numerous times, but they all lead to the same place, which is presence. And so, yeah, I think I, I read those because I was trying to touch something bigger than myself, find meaning in life. And I think there's the big discussion, you know, between like the atheists and the, and the religious folk is that, a lot of religious people have a meaning attached to it, and then atheists have truth attached to it. The truth is their first, you know, goal, understanding truth, a big word. And then for, for me specifically, I would posit myself in that camp where I'm looking for meaning. And when I find meaning, like coaching, like daddyhood, like being a good husband, like being a good friend, those are cool things. Those are big meanings. They, they give me purpose that is far more important and far more motivating than stuff. I have stuff now. I don't need more stuff. Yeah. It's, it's sort of, it's almost like welcoming things in to be able to let them go. Right. It's just it's yeah. materialistic. Which is lovely, but also pointless. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, what uh, is, is reading your preferred learning method? Uh, I would say up until the last five years, now I watch a lot of lectures on YouTube. And when I say that, I need to be specific. I don't watch nonsense. <laughs> I don't watch, you know, some conspiracy video that teaches me science. I, I, being a college dropout, I probably have a much bigger affinity for those who finished their education. And I may even have a overblown respect for folks who went even to the nth degree and got a PhD in something. So I will watch lectures specifically in psychology. Um, from professors, noted professors who are still teaching. And there's something called the Khan Academy that does the same thing. And there's tons of these really cool portals online. There's something called Intelligence Squared in Britain, where any given topic, like the stuff I was talking about today with the safe space in colleges, they will have a moderator. They'll have two professors on the side of safe space. They'll have two professors on the converse. 
and they will have very polite, educated debate buttressed in reality. It's not ad hominem attacks. It's not trying to destroy each other. It's not trying to own the libs or own the conservatives. It's actual, you know, academic debate. And I love it. I think in part, as I mentioned, I, I was never part of that. And so maybe there's a, an affinity there. There's a implicit bias there. Uh, but yeah, I, I actually like the I'm, I'm auditorial. I learn auditorial as well. Well, sorry, what is that? I, I can listen and okay. watch a, a video and, and absorb as much, I think, because it, it definitely talks to a different part of my brain. Okay. Even if someone, I read, I read two books a week, but these lectures, you know, I've watched hundreds of hours of lectures over the last couple of years specifically, and, or maybe thousands now, and I learn a ton. And I have a lot of respect for these men and women that have dedicated their lives to be subject matter experts in whatever field. Uh, the ones that I've been really into is, you know, the psychology, the evolutionary biologists, uh, the mathematicians, and the people that are trying to solve the big problems. And, and those are very interesting discussions. Conversations on capitalism and communism and socialism and, uh, you know, which are huge to our culture today. And what are, you know, we have, as you're probably aware, if you look at anyone's feed in America, there's all these debates on socialism. And we don't even use the word correctly. We're socialists. Well, well no, actually, we're not. <laughs> if anything, we're a mixed market. And, you know, Social Security could be looked at as social and, and disability insurance. And, you know, but we're not a socialist country, just by definition. So the fact that we have these debates online all the time, is it's insane. And that's also why I don't, I wanted to be clear to demarcate what I watch and what I listen to, because I'm not listening to, you know, my friend who like me dropped out of high school or dropped out of college and doesn't have any subject matter expertise. And then he's debating evolutionary biology because he watched a video on YouTube, right? Like, no, dude, you don't get to talk. Like you can talk, but it's an opinion. And obviously it's a flawed one. And it's, it's as deep as a wading pool. And then your adamacy is probably the only thing more irritating than your lack of knowledge. But, I'll just stop there. So I just, I try to make sure that if I want to even debate, not even debate, if I have a, a guest on that I, which I do bring on, I, I do 50 to hundred hours of homework just to have the necessary foundation to ask the questions. <laughs> it means I don't know shit and, and I want to know. And so I'm actually truth. I'm trying to attempt to find truth. And in any of the subjects that I mentioned, they're really big and they're really complex and they're not suitable for Facebook and Twitter. They're just not. It's another part of our culture. And I can tell you this as an expert in advertising, because I am to some degree, at least at the macro pieces of it, social media. And I've had this debate with friends too. I think social media, even if it's a 51-49 split, I think social media has been more deleterious to our culture than it has beneficial. And in part because of mental health for kids, because of addiction, because of behavioral science that talks to that addiction, we in my field used those tools and triggers to bring people back to the app. We know what we're doing when we do that. There's some issues there and we've all built our own little bubbles now and our own little bubbles 
we believe our ideology because it's easier. You don't have to do as much homework. And that to me is a problem, a huge problem in it, that we're seeing. And that's actually, again, I think that's part of what I'm trying to do with my podcast and, and my leadership training and coaching and those kind of things is that I, we just have to admit as a group that the subjects that we're debating in short form, explosive ad hominem content isn't working. <laughs> so we kind of need to, I think, explore different territories. And in, in my examples, it's long form content that involves homework, both before and after. There is that. I mean, there's a great expression, you know, it's go deep, not wide. You know, it's a whole yeah. social, social media thing. You can know whatever it is, 5,000 friends or whatever. Yeah. Um, which is, yeah, sure, listen, it has its uses, all right, but at the same time, there's no depth in those relationships, you know. No. And that goes back to what I mentioned earlier. I think a lot of times we're trying to impress nameless, faceless people mm. by winning an argument or owning the argument. And that's not the point. I mean, true, you know, like Hegelian dialectic is not trying to win. It's trying to learn. And I think if we could do that as a culture, we'd be better off because it's not about winning an argument. It's about, you know, if I throw something out there and I did this with my last two debates on safe space, I, I have an opinion on it. And so I would throw that up to the professors and say, this is my opinion. What do you think? And they would say, well, you know, did you think about this? And I'd be like, I did not actually. And that's, no, that's cool. I didn't think of that. And in, in both these cases, I came out of my discussions believing something I didn't previous. So I'm learning in, the, in that conversation. And I think that's the neat thing about a true conversation or a true dialectic is that you're not attempting to win. You're not attracting to or attempting to pin someone down on a logical argument or make them look bad or make yourself feel bad that you didn't know. It's just, oh, wow, I know. I never thought of that. That's cool. And I think that is in part the training that I spoke to in the book is that if you just admit that you're a douchebag, for me, <laughs> it made my life easier because it's, I'm not trying to compete with myself. I'm not trying to one-up myself. I'm not trying to uh, be someone I'm not. And if I actually don't know about a subject, what's the best way for me to learn it? It's to reach out to people and ask them questions like, hey, and by the way, if you, if you, you have to do some homework to even understand the questions, right? You can't ask the right questions if you haven't done any homework. And I learned that in the business world. You know, as a business development guy, you have to understand enough to ask the client the right questions because if you can ask a client a question they can't answer in a pitch meeting, you have a very big chance of winning that deal. Because if they're like, oh, I never thought of that. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, okay. So you don't know. Like, no, I don't know. And I'm like, I don't either. That's what we need to solve, Mr. Johnson. That problem right there. And they're like, oh, yeah. You know? as opposed to coming in and saying, hey, our creative team put together this campaign. This is what you guys should be doing. This is what your brand should represent. This is the story you need to tell. And if you didn't do your homework, they'll be like, you know what? Did you watch that campaign that we did last year? No. 
yeah, we did that last year and it shit the bed. So thanks. You can leave. <laughs> like you didn't do your homework. We don't need you here. And that level of understanding, I think, is key. And if that works in the business world, it'd probably work in our personal relationships as well. Understand the person you're talking to as best as possible before you make an accusation or a judgment. That sort of difference, really, isn't it, between the, you know, inspiration, motivation, and transformation? It's, you know, clients, advertising, whatever. Yeah, sure, we can, we can possibly have something that inspires us, but the problem is it doesn't change us. Yeah. You know, and until you do that, you know, credit to you and your story. And that's the thing, I suppose, you know, the, <clears throat> the process of the book really as well is, is actually going through that and saying, we're not just going to smooth over the cracks and ignore the, the elephant in the corner. Yeah. You know, God forbid, but, it's got to come out. It's got to, all bets are off, right? And time to see what's happening. What's, what's going on. Yeah. You, if you ignore those monsters, they'll grow mm. and they'll raise up and bite your head off at some point. Mm. And that's happened to me too many times, you know, being lazy by as a kid, I was really lazy. I was lazy intellectually. I was lazy in sports. <sighs> It doesn't work. <laughs> Just put it that way. <clears throat> to all the lazy people out there, that's... <laughs> yeah, it's not going to fill them with any joy, right? It's just not going to work. No. Being lazy mm. doesn't work. Mm. No, I, my, my, my oldest son has a lot of my characteristics. He's a very good athlete, but he doesn't like the, the hard work. Mm. He doesn't want to put in the time on the dribbling or the drills. He wants to scrimmage and he wants to score and he's a very good athlete and he does score and he's you know a very popular member of his team but he just won't put in the time and so for that i have that's my job with him is to help him through demonstrable action mm. him witnessing me do what i'm doing to say okay dad's doing this i need to do it too because why is dad good at this well dad did this this and this and this to get good but it just didn't just pop in you know Totally. If, if you were to describe your fire in the belly in one or two words, Joey, what would they be? I hate failure. I hate it. Um, and, and I guess probably to encapsulate a little better, I don't like losing to others. <laughs> so my own failure is difficult to manage, but being at the bottom of a hierarchy is not okay with me. I don't like it. I don't like the way it feels. I've been there many times, specifically academically. I felt stupid until about the age of 30. And my older brother, who is an academic, and he's, he reads all the time. And he said to me, he's like, you know, you have a huge problem, Joey. He said, you don't have a lot of respect for the masses, but you don't read, which means you have to believe the reporting of the masses. Do you understand this conundrum? And I was like, oh, man, <laughs> that's a good one. And he goes, you need to start reading, dude. And I did. Mm. And that was the same time, as I mentioned earlier, I started really reading after my collapse. You know, my, my dad embezzled my money and I had nothing to do. And 
And as I started reading these spiritual texts, the one thing I realized that was a real uh, epiphany was that I could remember what I was reading. And I was like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> so what can I do with this knowledge? And you're like, well, you, for one, you can be happier with yourself. Oh, that's called introspection. That's a new word, isn't it? Dumbass. You know, if you'd have read 10 years ago, you didn't know what that word meant, but you didn't. And, and then, as I mentioned earlier, all the knowledge that you learn is applicable in other areas. So mm. it, there is no downside to that. And yeah, I mean, I think that for me, recognizing that I needed to do these, I needed to do things I didn't want to do. Maybe that's it. You know, I didn't think I needed to sit down and read. I didn't think I needed to sit down and study these things. I thought I could just kind of float through life on charisma, <clears throat> uh, which actually worked way too well for too long. <laughs> and that was another wake up call. But yeah, I got lost in my answer there for you, Pete. I don't know exactly where I went with that. But no, it's, it's, it's all fascinating how it also ties together, you know, but it is that, you know, really sort of, I don't know, I just don't. Uh, yeah, the, the the focus and the drive upon yourself. Oh, you know, yes, well. it was the fire. So mm. failing. I, I didn't like being at the bottom of the hierarchy. Mm. Uh, and by the way, when you are at the top, it is noticeable. It, and as I said before, when you close the deal, when you go out to the floor, we want it, guys, we want it. You know, there's that rush that is not, it's maybe short-lived, but it's huge and it's powerful. And that, you know really intense feeling of pleasure is short-lived, but the idea of walking around in a culture as a affluent businessman, traveling first class, staying at the best hotels, eating at the best restaurants, serotonin is rushing through you, man. I <laughs> mean, it just is. And that's the biology side of it, right? That was what the, my, homework on evolutionary biology taught me is that, oh, that's why I feel so good. You know, it wasn't just the paycheck because money's great. Don't get me wrong, but money is freedom. That's really all it is. If, if you look at it, it allows you to do what you want to do. You can live where you want to live and you can drive what you want to drive and you can, you know, choose your career and you can be a stay-at-home dad <laughs> as an example. And and so it was there, but yeah, the hierarchy was key for me. Failure was not. And I think the good news for me is that the shame attached to failure isn't there anymore. Failure for me now is a learning process. And so, and I, and I don't feel like I have to prove anything anymore to anyone. That's huge. Yeah. It took me a while to get there, but I don't, I've, I've done it. You know, I've achieved what I wanted to achieve. And now the goal is to become a better human being. And so the failures, and I have many of them, are, they're quick hits. I mean, they hurt, they're like a body blow here and there, but they, I shut them off, I shake them off pretty mm. quick. And, and then I learn from them. So yeah, failure, I didn't, I didn't like losing to other people, especially men. I really don't like losing to other men. I, I'm big in the dominance hierarchy thing. I believe it. Uh, 
I didn't want to be looked at as the runt. <laughs> do you do you sit with the idea or concept that you know the 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 conscious mind is the the masculine energy and the subconscious mind is the feminine energy? I think in metaphor, it works. I mean, that's Jungian, you know, he represents those. Uh, there's a psychologist named Jordan Peterson who believes in that. He talks about those things as well, that, that the male dominance, the male energy is, is chaos and or order, and the female energy is chaos. But these are represented by, you know, deities in, in canonical literature. So... That was his defense because he got attacked on that, by the way. But for me, you know, the yin yang and, and all of that in my martial arts studies, there's always the, the good and the bad of everything. And I think that the, the idea of specifically the macro of Jungian psychology is to integrate these into your personality and to understand the necessary uh, components of both the male and female energy. It goes back to my earlier discussion on masculinity. I think that masculinity as a culture is ill-defined and I think that we could expand on it. I, I hate the word or I hate the phrase toxic masculinity because that was thrown out with uh, the likes of Harvey Weinstein, you know, who was a serial rapist and criminal and just a really bad human being. And, and if you affix a label to that man and then you take that label and extend it to other men, it doesn't work, you know, it just doesn't work on the framing of it. But I don't think masculine energy in any way is toxic unless the person doing it, the individual doing it is corrupt. That's, that's not male energy. That's just a corrupt human being. And so I think that I would say, let's correct that first. And then the other is that being vulnerable and admitting you're wrong and admitting you're fallible and admitting you're scared and being honest about yourself at an introspective level, as well as a, you know, outwardly sharing level, all those things I think could be encapsulated better under the terms of masculinity. And then the same thing stands true with femininity. I think that I have a lot of feminine qualities and I've been told this by my female friends because I'm sensitive and I'm an empath and I cry in front of my kids when I watch silly cartoons and they're I don't think either one of them on their own is good or bad I think that the melt I think that the the culmination of it is probably the most powerful it's the the weaving of the tas tapestry that needs both to make it strong it's that yeah I mean, it is the balance, right? But that's the aspect of life. It's the, you know, the inner and the outer, the male, the female, the all parts yep. of us, really. It's, it's alignment with self. Up, down, good, bad, black, white. Mm. Yeah. The polarity of our existence, I think, is, the, mm. is what keeps everything together. Because I noticed as you, as you speak, there's times, you know, there's, there's multi-tenses come in at certain points. You know, the I, the me, the myself, the we. You know, but then at other times you show extreme clarity, you know, so it's, it's just, uh, I find it interesting that you know, there is some compartmentalization, but there's also, uh, also a mass awareness at the same time. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think that's just part of the, the pieces that are still me are in, in need of more work. 
<laughs> and then and then the pieces that are introspective and humble are further along you know mm. i'm further along on that journey there and that's just that is part of the work i think is the further i can move away from the ego the better mm. that's just one thing that's proven consistent since i started studying myself is if i can you know, there's a lot of discussions on ego in the spiritual world, people that believe you can conquer it, but I, I, I heard the Dalai Lama say the other day that he still has moments of furious anger, and that's his ego. And so, if the Dalai Lama, who is by <laughs> definition, you know, here based on reincarnation, <laughs> and he's had generations of being human to get to where he is and he still deals with that then i'm like all right <laughs> if the dalai lama himself is still dealing with that shit you know it's okay for me to deal with it too and where does my ego sit and, and, and do i recognize it i think that's the big piece is that if you're aware that you're acting through your ego because you're being a dick that's the first step and the second step is like okay how do i make sure i'm not a dick <laughs> next time this thing happens and what triggered me to be mean or short with somebody you know what was that where did it come from and I'm, th I'm i'm there quite often now where even when i do screw up it's immediate that i know i did something i said something that didn't feel right and it affected my anxiety and my anxiety was there to trigger not trigger i hate the word the anxiety was there to help me learn don't do that again why well, you felt bad, didn't you? I did. I felt terrible. Okay, well, then stop it. Okay. And that's the internal dialogue I have quite often. You know? mm. My favorite rhyme is it? <laughs> yeah, no, it's not PC. I can't say that. <clears throat> but yeah, it's, it's the dialogue internally that I have. Uh, I'm working on to, again, not to shed the ego, but to embrace it and to recognize that it's there. Yeah. Yeah, it's clarity. This is awesome. Uh, tell me, how can people learn more about you? How can they get a copy of the book? How can they follow you, hunt you down, track you, stalk you, all the above? <laughs> well, the, the book is for sale on Amazon, and that's Joey Somebody, The Life and Times of Recovering Douchebag. Mm -hmm. And then my podcast can be found on every platform, Apple, Spotify, and all of those, but I have a YouTube channel. And so if you just look up Joey Dumont, laugh your cry out, which is the name of the podcast. <clears throat> I have 10 episodes now and they're both video and audio. So if people actually want to watch my guests and I interact, I have filmed that. And then the podcast themselves, obviously are just to listen on your own. But those are the two biggest vehicles I have right now. I have a website called joeydumont.com which kind of talks about those things. It talks about the podcast. It talks about the book. Oh, and it has my coaching. So I, as I mentioned before, I do some coaching with <clears throat> a couple executives on the side as I stay at home and watch my kids. But that's, that's the best way to get a hold of me. If anyone wants to talk uh, about anything, I, I enjoy hmm. spirited debate and, and learning from as many people as I can. So I'd welcome any any outreach or call or text or DM or whatever it would be. 
Sure. Final message you'd like to leave the listeners? As my mom always says when we get off the phone, be kind. Yeah. Be present and be kind. Thanks for having me, man. This was cool. That was cool. Thank you. Really appreciate your time. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without our great guests taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon, and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons, and successes. So, all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly, and be the mightiest version of you.